0: My guest today is Sam Reynolds, Managing Director of Octopus Investments Australia. Sam, welcome. Hi, Alex. How are you? Very well. You know, in terms of your background being a renewable energy specialist, oil and gas, you know, they've they've taken a big hit due to coronavirus. The prices have come down. Curious to get maybe your your thinking around sort of what the future holds for these oil and gas companies, particularly as they now compete against renewables and how that sort of that value trade uh, looks. So, yeah, as you say, look,
1: coronavirus has had a big hit on oil demand. I think it's down probably a third due to travel bans. And we've seen actually in the US uh, where oil dropped below zero for the first time ever. And, and really landing a direct hit on a, on a sector in the grip of its own crisis and, and change. So, and that, that is how to evolve when climate change has risen up the agenda, both politically Uh, but also in the hearts and minds of consumers and more importantly to some of the big oil majors, uh, shareholders. And so it's worth maybe talking in terms of the investor response, um, but then also just looking at some of the um, how capital and how these uh, businesses are starting to to transition to a sort of a, a low carbon future. And in regard to the investor response, and we've seen it here in Australia, but it's probably a bit more prevalent in Europe um, and the US. So investors and shareholders around the world are pushing corporate management teams towards incorporating climate change into their business plans and strategies. And you would have seen uh, HESTA, the industry super fund, just last week. I think they came out and said that they're reducing carbon emissions in its Investment portfolio by over 30% by 2030, and to be net zero by 2050. And we're seeing a lot more of this come from uh, shareholders and shareholder members as they're as they're running their own internal studies. This is being more and more prevalent. This is high on on the agenda. And then, if you look at the other side, uh, where's new investment coming? And we're looking at the first time in history that actually capex in renewable energy will overtake upstream oil and gas supply in 2021. So the first time ever that more, more money will be spent on renewables uh, than, than oil and gas. And what that also means uh, is for future future supply. So there's you, you're probably sort of seeing things around uh, when is oil demand going to peak? Uh, that was around sort of 20 years from now. Those studies have brought that into 10 to 15 years from now. And if you're looking at uh, investment into the sector, so if you're you're looking at hurdle rate returns for investors into oil and gas, because they're, they're pricing in a carbon price and an environmental price, and investment returns are looking at sort of 15 to 20% for upstream oil and gas investment, while our assets in Europe, regulated assets, so some with government support, they're, they're trading at around 5% at the moment. So there's a real difference in the, in the cost of capital uh, to the two uh, energy sectors. And One of the big things I suppose at the moment is how the big oil and gas, the global oil and gas companies are transitioning to a low carbon future. And what we've seen more recently is a lot more being spent. Um, so budgets have gone up sort of threefold, I think, in the last 12 months, how much they're spending in regard to accelerating uh, their, their presence in, in the low carbon space. And that's into, into re- renewables, into PPAs, so signing PPAs, but also uh, capital investment into renewables, also electric vehicle infrastructure. So these businesses are starting to make the the transition, and uh, also coming out very publicly to say. So BP, Shell, Total have all come out publicly to say that they they're looking towards net zero by twenty fifty. So a very interesting uh, time for the for the oil and
0: gas majors. It's interesting you say that you know in terms of the you know, the amount of capex that's going into renewables and and the. Uh, you know- obviously a lot more supply coming on board. You know, what happens to maybe some of these oil and gas companies, some of them that are pretty old school? Yes, there are some that are moving, but the ability for them to maybe keep lowering prices as they try to maybe deal with some geopolitical issues uh, and push the oil price down and sort of thinking, maybe it's more of a capital markets question, but just sort of that relative um, cost for, for production of energy. You know, how do you think about, you know, that that potential Risk, um, particularly obviously, you mentioned that oil prices went you know, below zero. It was more of a, a futures problem and a, and a mismatch in demand and supply. But, yeah, you know, how, how do you think about that in terms of the the relative value of of renewables um, in this sort of current environment? Yeah,
1: definitely. I think the the, the issue that they're, they're going to have is that um, quite a lot of laden with with debt at the moment, so they're going to need some sort of support. Uh, as you say, capital market support to continue trading, and whether some some governments, Canada's come out to say that they're going to support some of the oil and gas majors um, through their their debt concerns um, because they want to keep them up and running. And in regard to um, supply, so the, the the key thing is that there's going they're going to have a sort of a bigger um, geopolitical and consumer. Uh, impact on, on those majors and, and, and economies relied fully on, on oil and gas. And what we're seeing at the moment is you look at uh, the man and woman on the street is not as concerned with the air that, um, that we breathe, uh, breathe as a population. And that is mostly due to, you look, there's, there's less cars on the roads, there's less planes in the air. And this is something that they want to see as the, as the norm going forward. So there, there is going to be that sort of added pressure, even though um, oil prices might be low now, um, and China is probably filling up its its reserves at the moment. Um, but there is going to be pressure on uh, on economies around the world to reduce their their use and reliance on on oil uh, in their markets.
0: Mm-hmm. So you know, let's, let's maybe take it closer to, to home. You know, when the Australian government sort of changed its view on renewable energy policy of late and there was some discussion about sort of the role of of renewable energy as part of nation building can you give a bit more context in terms of what does that what does that look like or what have you heard there
1: so yeah our recent conversations with government um and mostly state government is that renewables projects are being viewed as priority infrastructure and that the australian government is seeing renewables as a way to help jobs in the market and especially rural jobs so Renewable energy assets can get up and running relatively quickly. Um, we can have sort of assets up and running into construction in three to six months once we've done our initial DD and, and it's gone through planning and, and grid, etc. So they're they're talking to us about look how can we how can we get these projects into into construction to start getting workers back into the market, um, but it has to be done under a sound regulatory framework. Now, renewable energy doesn't need a government subsidy uh, to be viable, but the government, uh, so the government doesn't really need to um, support renewables, just doesn't need to inhibit the progress of of renewables. And the governments are seeing more and more that actually renewables are being really positive in the market um, as a a way to get the economy back on its feet
0: it's interesting you mentioned sort of the rural areas as being a really key part of it and I know a couple of the questions that we get at our, at our events around sort of how to you know where are these um, types of projects best suited you know are these are these renewable projects still best suited to maybe these rural areas where they need very large areas of space you know in this particular maybe um uh applications you know where where the power will feed into how do you think about sort of the optimal place maybe for for renewables to fit in
1: yeah so the bit different to where we've built most of our assets in europe when you're looking at the three elements of develop developing a renewable energy site so you look at grid planning and land so when we Built in Europe, um, grid is, is the easiest one of those three. Land and planning are more challenging because of the concentrated nature of the population and, and smaller countries, uh, whether it be in, built in the UK, France, Italy, uh, the, the Nordic region. In Australia, land and planning are relatively straightforward, uh, but grid is the number one factor. And that's, that's where we spend a lot of time on our due diligence. And most of the projects that we take through our internal. DD filter, we throw them out because of grid. So you've got to have a look at the, the, the big pipes, that transport electricity around the network and you want to be on, this, on the stronger pipes in the network um, that, are, that are going to remain up and running. Now it doesn't mean you can't build on, on skinnier parts of the grid if you like, but you have to factor in things like loss factors and uh, line loss factors into your models. Uh, or potentially uh, curtailment where there's just not enough uh, line capacity for all the energy to be transported down it and which means you could be you could be contained um, constrained sorry and that's so grid in australia is is number one so location on the grid is is where we generally start then you start to look at planning and land and when we do start to look at planning and land we also spend a lot of time with the community and that's really important uh, make, that you make sure the community engagement starts a good 12, 18 months before you start construction and put in place things like uh, hiring as many construction workers from the local community as you can. What other things can the, the solar asset bring to the community? We're looking at uh, scholarship programs to send kids to, off to university from the, from the local area. Uh, things like solar street lighting for the local town, um, other things around uh, providing high-speed Wi-Fi because we've got to do this anyway into our site to communicate it with our site. Can we can we provide high-speed Wi-Fi to to the local town? So we want to make sure our sites, which are going to be there for thirty-five years or longer, have a really positive impact because, as you say, most of these most of the renewable energy that's going to be built in Australia. The 200 billion that is thrown around of new investment is going to be built in rural areas, and therefore, we need to make it a really positive impact. Um, and that's why the community environmental engagement is really important.
0: It's interesting that you know you talk about the rural backdrop. Is that because it's an easier um, sort of containment to build these uh, large farms, and they feed in directly to the local community, and and that and that's the grid part that you're talking about? That it's a it's an easier Um, Link and there's not the sort of the heavy load on power that is one of the big questions and one of the big concerns about renewable that it it can't provide this uh, uh, power for really high energy intense style industries? So, no, really why they're built in
1: the rural areas is is mostly because access to land. So large scale solar and wind need access to land um, and you need planning approval. So you can't be putting... As you can imagine, large wind farms right next to uh, towns—they um, need they need the land access, but they also need access to the big transmission lines for, for transporting electricity around the grid, which which link up the states as well, especially within the national energy market, uh, which is the eastern seaboard of Australia. So the the real re- the real number one reason is is access to the grid. Now, uh, renewables can supply into. Uh, all parts of the grid. Uh, that's what the, that's what they do. They they link into the grid, same as uh, coal-fired power stations or or gas. And but they need, as you can imagine, uh, because solar comes off at night. They need what they what you call is firming. So they need things like gas or storage to make them available for base load. So base load is just means that the electricity is, is constant and you can use it as 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 and when required. And that's why renewables is required alongside other forms of generation. Uh, it could be coal, could be gas, could be storage or hydro in Australia. Mm-hmm.
0: You talked about sort of the storage piece there. Obviously, that's it has got a lot of uh, you know, notoriety of, of late in terms of the new battery technology that's coming out, you know. Can you give a bit more context in terms of what's happening in that space and and you know can is there enough batteries out there to to really make a sizable change, or does each individual house still need to have its own battery maybe to sort of charge up? How do you think about that that piece?
1: Yeah, so our our next two assets will have storage on them, um, but all of our assets will be storage ready. So, and we're looking at the economics of storage closely. We have been for a number of years. The economics uh, are just starting to, to stack up. Um, they will come down further as more batteries are uh, integrated into the market and you can really understand uh, and start to monetize the different revenue streams you can get uh, from having a, a large-scale battery. So it's not just the arbitrage of, of selling electricity, of storing electricity in it during... Times of uh, low cost and and selling the electricity back to the grid during high costs. There's also uh, you can also have serv- services available to the grid operators around on demand uh, on demand of that electricity that can be used in instantaneously to help the grid operators manage the grid. Uh, also things like balancing the grid when renewables are coming off and on. So those things are still be done, but a little bit like uh, solar panels. So solar panel technology costs came off about 65% in the last five years, uh, five, six years, and that's because they became more mainstream uh, and China and large-scale uh, production facilities were created around solar uh, solar panel technology. And this, exactly the same thing will happen with storage, making them more viable uh, to be putting into the grid uh, and across the market.
0: So the natural question then, I guess, when you talk about sort of such a large drop in prices being sixty five percent on sort of the solar panels, you know, and you're expecting sort of similar changes hopefully in, in the economics of, of storage as well. You know, as an investor, as you look at this particular part of the market, you know, how do you sort of factor that that part in when these are long term projects and then you sort of think, Okay, hold on, in three or four years or five years times there'll be another fifty percent drop in, in prices. How how do you sort of try to 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 uh, frame that part of the investment decision?
1: Yeah, definitely. So so solar panels make up about 35% of your your capex on on a renewable energy site, especially for a solar site. So so, uh, if you're looking at the other factors, uh, transport, uh, labour, labour costs in Australia are quite high. They're also going up. So... They start to counter any any reductions in technology, um, and solar panels also got down to a level where they're they're, they're very much commoditized. So they've been the, the best uh, producing panels are produced uh, around the world now, just not just by the Chinese, but they're produced by in other markets. So it's flattened out a little bit. But you also price new technology and next generation technology into your long term uh, energy curve. So. Even though in Australia we've got our coal-fired power stations, the majority of our coal-fired power stations are coming off in the next 10 to 15 years, it doesn't mean the energy price is going to skyrocket. It it could uh, if those coal-fired power stations come off in an unorderly manner without forecasts. But the things that bring the energy price down is the next generation of renewables and together with storage. So that's why when we look at our models, we run a relatively flat energy curve. And that, that's, that's the, one of the key assumptions in the long-term model uh, of a renewable energy asset is your, is your long-term energy curve. But it, it should factor in new technologies, costs coming down, uh, competing technologies, all that sort of thing goes into sort of how that, how that curve is shaped.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned there about sort of the new new technologies that are coming out. You know, the obviously wind and, and tidal are some other renewable energies that are also out there. You know, how do you think about them? Are they also part of the consideration as a, as another uh, option for for you?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we do we do wind and solar, and so tidal. We haven't done any tidal, so tidal for us is probably a little bit more nascent. So the technology is probably not where we would see at a full commercial scale. And look, solar and wind have taken probably 30 years to get to the stage where they are now, where they're at what we call grid parity, where you can compare them now to to existing generation of of coal, gas. Uh, So with things like Tidal, the next generation, it's not just the quality and the efficiency of the technology, it, it needs also the services and the production to be built around it. So those that can service the technology and those industries, supporting industries, still need to be built in order to make it uh, on the same level as, as solar and wind and and get to grid parity. And so that'll that'll come in the future. If it and then and then you'll need large amounts of capital. So the capital we need to come into it um, and access it so big insurance and pension co- companies will need to come into it get the the cost of capital on on something like title down and then it becomes a mainstream uh generation but uh next stage generation technologies are not not there yet and then they can take uh decades before they can be com- commercialized at scale
0: mm-hmm. you mentioned mentioned capital there and you sort of just touched on it about in terms of service and people so the human capital piece of the puzzle You know, what does that look like? You know, in terms of the solar, um, a solar farm, for example, you know, where is the human capital sort of most uh, deployed?
1: Yes, so quite a bit up during construction. Uh, We've got 500 workers working on our first solar site uh, in in southern New South Wales. And then after that, you have have an O&M, an operations and maintenance team, and then an asset management team, uh, that keeps the operations going um, after you finish construction. And then things like revenue management. So, just on one of our sites, uh, about 60, 70% of the asset will have a long term power purchase agreement. So, that'll be a fixed element of the revenues. But you'll also have uh, 30 to 40% of merchant. And when I talk about revenue management, you need to constantly look at these assets and see: is that level of contracting right? Do we want to have a longer-term contract? Do we want to maybe have the con- have the asset at a hundred percent PPA rather than have a merchant element? It really depends on where we're seeing the market in the future. So that's another um, yeah. There's another another team that will also look at that side alongside the general asset management of the project.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned the PPA and sort of that whole accounting and and financial analysis piece. Obviously, we're going through COVID nineteen, still having a large impact. Credit quality is is an issue. You know, how how do you look at that, and how do you think about sort of the the credit quality of of where you're you know supplying ultimately as part of these PPAs that that you're drawn up.
1: Yeah, good question. So PPA credit quality is a bit of a case by case, depending on the specific counterparty. But the benchmarks we have are, are fairly encouraging. The majority of PPAs in Australia uh, have been signed by energy retailers. That probably makes up about sixty percent, and then the balance is government. Uh, so government entities, and then also you're getting a number of uh, investment grade uh, counterparts. So large corporates, global corporates, are, are coming into the into the market and. Some big consumer brands um, you would have seen more recently, and mostly along the lines is you don't want to be the only big consumer brand. Uh, whether you're an online technology business, uh, a data center, a a supermarket, and you're not getting your energy from a re- renewable source, you don't want your or your competitors to be advertising on that front while you're sitting and getting your energy from a from a coal fired power station, etc. So. There is a real impetus to for these uh, large consumer brands uh, to be signing up PPAs, and there is a bit more activity on that space uh, more recently post uh, the bushfires. Also,
0: is there more work that you're doing? You mentioned sort of a, in sort of retail, but is there also work that you guys do in terms of trying to get people like households to sort of sign up for these sort of you know making sure that their power does come from renewables in these local bush areas and rural areas that you mentioned.
1: Um, so we are looking at some products where we can supply our energy from our sites uh, cheaper to the to the local community so having a slightly different tariff um, we're working on a couple of things on that front um, and we have some technology with our with our octopus energy business that can trace electrons from source through the grid to the end user so I think that's going to be a bit more exciting for definitely for corporates but but also for local communities and how they're how they're getting in their energy, and then one step further would be to trace it back to, say, a super fund member. If a super fund is investing into a particular asset, you can sort of illustrate how that the energy from the the asset that they've invested into where what where that where that has ended up, and because you want want to have you want to showcase these assets to investors and to consumers that look, yes, they're doing. They're providing clean energy, but they're also doing some great things for the community and in the rural areas. Um, And so, there's those economic benefits uh, as well that that should be showcased as part of the investment thesis. Mm
0: -hmm. So, the next question is: is sort of the you you talk a lot about ESG, but we talk also about sort of the sustainable development goals and the need to sort of understand the supply chain. You know, how do you also sort of make sure that? you know, the the solar panels also sort of tick that box around that full supply chain, you know, understanding that the whole supply chain is sustainable as well.
1: Yes. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And look, we've also signed up to the uh, UN SDGs. And what we've looked to do initially today is we're focusing on eight primary SDGs. And then we have uh, 11 secondary SDGs. And, going back through our supply chain uh, it's it's not something we've done we do go to, to go to the factories to look at where our solar panels come from etc but we haven't gone one step for further to see actually how are the minerals and how are the other resources um, brought together to make our, our solar panels and that will be a journey that we'll be under also how uh, solar panels at the end of their life at the end of the 35 year life um, how they get recycled, and those industries are uh, still to be developed. There is there is some parties that recycling um, solar panels, but they will be industries that will be developed um, and that will start to support as well, and and just things like as as you know with sort of um, getting cars or other 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 compliances uh, recycled. Not hasn't been great uh, in the past, but it's definitely things that we'll look at as we as we go
0: on this journey um, with the SDGs. Mm-hmm. So maybe final final question: As you know, we think about it. We started off and talked a little bit about sort of the government, you know, not having to provide the same sort of incentives that they did previously um, around renewables. What what else are maybe the other informational barriers that you know investors as they think about renewables need to sort of maybe think about a little bit more in terms of getting them comfortable. Um, about this as a, uh, you know, as it really is a truly infrastructure um, investment opportunity that does have its ESG lens as well that can be directly uh, put on top of it.
1: Yeah, definitely. So a couple of things. I mean, and this is, it's there's no better environment to see how renewable renewable energy assets have fared um, than the current environment under under a corona cloud. And look, the impact. On the revenues uh, has been felt on, if you like, as I mentioned, most of our assets have 60 to 70 percent long term power purchase agreements, so that's they're fixed. And so, the impact currently being felt on our assets is on the 30 to 40 percent, which is merchant. But really, we're only seeing about a five percent drop in demand in any in electricity, and that's because. Look, just because uh, people have moved from working in offices to working from home, it doesn't mean they've stopped using electricity. Uh, so what we see at the moment is what you'd get in a electricity, a weekend demand we're now seeing as a, as a seven-day week demand, if you like. And so even if this continues for, say, three, two, three years, Uh, As it only impacts that 30 to 40% element of your revenues in these two to three years, it doesn't have a big impact on your overall returns for a 35-year asset. And that's where renewables is stacking up quite well and we're getting more and more interest in the asset class, especially from those who've invested in traditional infrastructure around airports um, and toll roads. And... The other, the other part of it is also that the, the fuel source. That, that means wind and sunlight. So obviously sunlight and wind volumes are, are not market linked, and no surprise there. But probably the other misconception in the market is that wind and solar resource is unpredictable. It, that's not true. We have now bankable standards as to how to predict uh, wind and solar volumes, um, and this comes from having Decades of weather data in particular areas of where you're going to build your assets, and these these inputs are free to use. So, as I mentioned, not not market correlated, and that's why it makes this asset class a very strong, defensible asset class during these times. The other only key aspect is that is the operations and maintenance is a very low. Uh, operating costs on renewable energy assets, and so they do continue to provide good liquidity uh, to service uh, equity and debt, and that's a that's a key aspect for these assets and why we see them as as long as they've done right um, with an experienced management team up front, we see them as long term relatively boring, defensible asset plays and and should be part of any infrastructure portfolio going forward. <laughs>
0: All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Sam. Great. Thanks for your time also, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.